everybody. Welcome to episode 111 of App Percussion. It's a beautiful Sunday afternoon, September 3rd. I'm Laura Black, sitting in for Casey Cangelosi today. Of all places, he has rehearsal, so he <laughs> might be able to join us in just a little bit. But as always, I'm joined by the other regular co-hosts over in Missouri, Megan Arns. Hello. And down in Texas, Ben Charles. Hi, everybody. So, guys, we just finished up, well, for Ben and I and Casey, our first week. And, Megan, you just finished your second week of class. How's everybody doing? A little fried. I think I got laryngitis from the first two weeks. Yeah, I... I (laughs) So, I'm a little hoarse. I always forget how much I have to talk during the first week. And, like, I have, like, four or five freshmen, and I have to give the same lesson, like, four or five times... And by the, you know, the fifth time explaining piston strokes in the week, I'm just shot. <laughs> oh, I know. Or you, you say things like eight times. Like, guys, send me your rep list. And then you email them, send me your rep list. And then they show up for a lesson and they have not sent a rep list. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, guys, about our guest today, uh, it's been really cool to watch his company grow over the years. So the three of us, when we were in undergrad, we would see these marimbas kind of here and there. Uh, but now they're really all over the world and they're very commonly placed just about anywhere like you can go. Like across the hall from me. Or <laughs> across the hall. <laughs> so we've had several of his company's artists slash indoor C's on the show already, such as Eric Odimo, Beverly Johnston, Matt Sherrick, and Mike Truesdale. And we're so stoked to have with us from beautiful Arcata, California, the founder and mastermind of Marimba One. Hello and welcome to you, Ron Samuels. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so happy that you are able to to join us today. Just to get started, I know that I've heard you talk about what made you want to start building Marimbas before, but I think a lot of people listening have maybe never heard that story. So if there's an abridged version you can give us what made you want to build marimbas in the first place we would love to hear it sure um, what what attracted me to building marimbas was was i first heard uh, zimbabwean style marimbas up in eugene oregon and i thought the sound was super cool really great and at the time i was playing a lot of piano and i had the complete misconception that i could play on those marimbas what i like to play on the piano so i came back <laughs> to Humboldt university and the Zimbabwean marimbas are diatonic instruments. And so I started taking from J.B. Smith uh, on, on chromatic marimba and quickly learned that there was no way I could transfer what I wanted to play on the marimba that I played on the piano. And, but I, I just fell in love with the sound of the marimba. And when summertime came around, after studying for about a year or so, I looked through the Steve Weiss catalog and found that I could not afford a marimba. And so I thought, well, maybe I could just go ahead and build one for myself. Hmm. And that's what launched me on on uh, my marimba making career. The British version. So, Rana, <laughs> I have a I have a question to to follow up to that. What did your mother think <laughs> when you decided to start making a marimba company, especially at a time when marimbas weren't so common? Well, uh, my, both my parents were were really supportive of me. They, they did think it was a little bit of a crazy idea to, to do this, but they could tell I was, I was really passionate and super into it. So they, you know, they thought it was the right thing for me to be doing. They weren't sure until later on as they started to become somewhat successful that it was really gonna you know, take off and something was gonna happen. 
but they were, uh, you know, they were, they were amused and uh, supportive of me, I'd say. And what were some of the early obstacles that you faced in starting this company? Wow, well, um, I, I would say uh, the, the early obstacles were all trying to figure out how to build a marimba. And that's really, that's really what it was. And at the time, that's when I thought about starting a marimba company, it didn't occur to me until several, several years later and that I could convert my hobby into actually making some money doing it. But the whole time, I was always trying to figure out how to build the marimba. And that was everything from, from the engineering of the frame to the engineering of the resonators to, and to have the bars on it. And just, just, the, just that mechanical layout, have the bars line up correctly over the resonators was, was, for me, a really big challenge. And then all the tuning. And the, the tuning was really, really challenging for me. I had... I had one one-hour tuning lesson from this old guy named Del Roper, who some of you may know is somewhat of a historical figure in the uh, marimba scene. And Del Roper and his uh, super ta talented friend named Lowell Monts, they they built marimbas in the 50s, and uh, and it was sort of funny when I when I met those two old guys, uh, which would have been in the in the mid 80s, they were they were sure that a big marimba company was going to come to them and offer them a million dollars for all their secrets they had. <laughs> but instead, I showed up. And, uh, <laughs> I talked them into one one-hour tuning lesson, and that's really what got me going, setting my mind in the right place, so I started to know what to look for in tuning bars, and uh, and then also tuning resonators. Uh -huh. Speaking of tuning resonators and bars, Gordon Stout asked us through Facebook, he said, why do you not use round tubes on the bottom of your marimbas? Well, that is such an interesting question. Uh, and there's, there's, there's a lot of different opinions, as, as, as marimba players know. Yeah. And um, what, what I learned over time, after lots of experimentation, to, to make a big sound, to get like a big sound in a, in a hall on a marimba, you have to physically move a lot of air which comes down to the volume of the inside of the resonator. And so, so I, I figured that out. I learned that. And um, also, I, I wanted to make instruments that were really comfortable for people to play. And, and to me, I talked to a lot of people, and, and I, I, I decided upon what, I seem, what seems to me a really comfortable width and length of bars for people. And so if, if it, one way to get like a really big volume you know, of, of moving air is to have really wide bars so you could use a large diameter resonator. And what that means is it, um, it, it, it puts you in a position of having to maybe play, change how you play the marimba because like a, your reaches are so big mm -hmm. uh, with pallets. And so what I settled upon is, is I actually started this the idea and actually no one's really copied us on the oval resonators uh, is is using what I felt was just a comfortable with the bar and also that worked well acoustically with within the proportions of the bar itself mm -hmm. and then progressively larger oval resonators and okay. so so that's why that's why I decided to do that to keep it basically in my mind very player oriented just a comfortable spacing and 
and really let it be my responsibility to figure out and understand the acoustics of the resonators to make it work. Okay. Yeah, I think we've we've all played that marimbo that has the super wide intervals and the low range, and it's it's pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> um, so I had, since we're talking about your resonators, particularly in the low end, I know that a few years ago, I, probably about five years ago at this point, actually, you released your uh, Basso Bravo resonators, and I've heard of them, I've heard them, but I've never really known what they are. So could you tell us about how those are different from your traditional resonators? Mm. Sure. Sure. Uh, um, the Basso Bravo resonators uh, w were developed after, um, let's see, I, you know, I, it's sort of perfect we're in here. I'm, I'm going to move the setup here, and I'm going to show you another instrument in my office, and, and that'll, which is the archetype of what I use to develop the Basso Bravo resonators. So, awesome. Um, so I'm going to pull this chair over here. All right, so you're going to have to tell me. Can you see? Can you see this little instrument on the floor here? Uh, I don't believe so. Okay, angle down a tiny bit. Yeah, there, there you we go. go. Yeah. There we go. So, so this is um, for, for a while. I went through uh, uh, a serious balafone phase, mm -hmm. and and uh, um, and so this is an instrument where um, these are essentially tuned marimba bars. But instead of using resonators, as we're all accustomed to, I use gourds, and and so I, and I tune the gourds to match the frequency of the bar, just like you tune a metal resonator. So this is the sound of this instrument here. So I'm not sure if you can really really tell from this because because the sound of um, uh, of the iPad here, but it's but it's a really it's like this really killer warm. I'll put this back here. It's a really, just a really nice, warm, dark bass sound. And, mm -hmm. would, and, and so I made a bunch of these instruments back in, in the 90s. And, um, and it always sat in my mind that how could this, how could a gourd sound so good? Because the inside of the gourd, it's pithy. Um, it's not hard. Um, it's, the, the whole thing is really inconsistent. And uh, it just sort of broke all the rules of, of how I thought a resonator could be made. So about 10 years after that, we started doing a bunch of experimentation of how to take um, my oval resonators and basically uh, manipulate the harmonic spectrum inside of it to make it sound like the balafone here. And generally speaking, the, the sound of the balafone is... Um, with the gourd resonators, it's it's a really warm, dark uh, bass sound, ideal for bass notes. And and so what that means, like for for an instrument maker, is the the fundamental frequency is is turned up, like on a graphic equalizer, and the overtones are turned down. So so if you if you think of the sound of a bass of a bass note, sometimes you'll hear a bass note on a marimba, and it'll be like Sure, the bass note is there, but it's really bright. There's all sorts of overtones. Mm -hmm. I was trying to basically um, create a sound that was much darker and much warmer, and uh, not have so many overtones. So yeah. the, for the Basso Bravo resonators, we we set up a um, we have a uh, like a soundproof room. We have a Wanger sound module, 
and that we temperature control, it's soundproof, and we have a lot of software that we've used over the years. And so we started analyzing our, our current resonators and, and basically quantifying what we heard musically was going on. And then we just started ex experimenting with, with resonators and uh, um, using the exact same shape. And I guess what I, if, it's, if it's okay, I have this marimba right here that has Basso Bravo resonators. Should I show you right yes, on Yes, please. Yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. So I'm going to... Um, um, I'm going to pull back some bars and boom. Um, <laughs> okay, okay, so are we there? Yes. Okay, and so I'm going to move these. So, what you're seeing right now, um, is this a good angle? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, un unlike uh, the classic resonators that that we developed in the, in the 80s, uh, you're looking here at the low C sharp and D sharp of a five octave marimba, and what we have over the top are these um, these essentially plates or caps, and then going straight down the center of the resonator is another resonator, and so on the C sharp two on the C sharp resonator, the low resonator, um, it goes down about 12 or 14 inches. And essentially what it does is it's, it's, um, we were able by, here, I'll get back to this here. So, um, what we, what we were able to do is, is essentially attenuate those upper overtones and boost the bass end. And, and what we did is we, we played with uh, the size of that other tube going straight down and the length. And by doing that, we could control uh, the brightness and darkness of the resonator. And also what it does is it, um, the Bossa Bravo resonators are, are a little bit louder as well than the classic resonators. And uh, so in, in doing that process, um, we would always listen to everything really closely, and then we'd go back to our software and prove it to our ears what we were hearing. So a little bit like a sort of a biofeedback loop for us. So we'd play, we'd play the marimba in the shop, and we'd say, okay, because it's the bottom eight notes on the marimba that are the basso bravo notes, and we'd play them and say, oh, maybe this, for example, the E was a little bit bright. So... We'd listen in the shop, and then we'd go to the spectrum analysis and say, aha, yeah, the E was indeed bright. What was bright about it? Maybe it was a G-sharp within that, within that low E. So then we'd go and we'd re-engineer that, that particular resonator to get it to be a little bit darker. So what we did is we tried to not just get each note individually really warm-sounding, but we worked really, really hard to get them all blended well together. So it basically just sounds musical, which is our whole goal. So I had a, a quick question as a follow-up to that. The Basso Bravo, it, it exclusively deals with the re-engineering of the resonator. You didn't have to mess around with like the tuning of the keys at all? That's correct. Okay. That is correct. It's only the resonator and nothing else. Yeah. Wow, yeah. this whole business of like getting into building instruments is, it seems like so many different parts of your brain are working at the same time. Like you have to be very artistic and very creative, but also like kind of into physics. Yeah, I, there, there's 
Um, I mean, the credit goes to a lot of people here at Marimba One, but that's definitely our approach. Is is we um, we first you know, we first listen to it as as musicians yeah. and basically say, does it sound good? And I think are there problems with this? And uh, and then we go to the analytical side and basically identify what it is we like and what it is we don't like and why we like it and why we don't like it. And then figure out ways how to, to how to engineer it out or reinforce it. Well, and any of us, um, you know, once we're lucky enough to own a marimba of whatever kind, something that we're not always so sure about is how to take care of it um, to make sure that it always sounds good. And so uh, to combine one of my questions, which is how often should you get your bars retuned? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So we'll start with that, and then we'll add to it a question from Peter Ferry from P Facebook. Besides long-term maintenance, how can we make sure our marimbas are in peak condition and consistency the day of a concert or recording session? Uh -huh. Okay. So in, in terms of retuning, um, I recommend people, after they get the marimba, to have it retuned within two years. And just as an aside, we always give a free retuning for two years just for that reason. Because any new instrument you get is going to go a little bit sharp. And um, even though we, we have wood that's aged many, many years, it'll still go a little bit sharp. In particular, if you're in an area that's super dry. Like, let's say, let's say we send a marimba to New Mexico, where the humidity is very low. Within four to five months, the instrument will go a little bit sharp. And the, the way it goes sharp, it doesn't go sharp uniformly. Um, uh, some bars that go sharper than others, and also um, not the fundamentals won't necessarily all go sharp, but it may be some of the overtones that go sharp. And so what what it is is the whole thing just shifts a little bit out of alignment, <clears throat> and it, and through retuning it, you could really get sound much much better. And uh, um, it's pretty easy to retune, and you'd be surprised how little wood is removed, but how big a difference it can really make. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Peter Ferry's question about what what you can do to have instrument be optimal in a in a recording situation or performance situation. So, um, uh, so the first thing is is make sure you have enough time for the instrument to acclimate. So ideally, so what we do is we tune the 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 resonators at seventy degrees and the bars at seventy degrees plus or minus three or four degrees. And so that's that's its optimal playing temperature in in that range, and and so if let's say you know you just drove overnight from Chicago and it was super cold in your car, it'd be really good to let your instrument warm up for several hours. I think Peter Ferry lives mm -hmm. in Chicago, and yeah. and so that, that that's just the very first thing. Make sure that it has time to come to ambient room temperature, and it could be you know maybe three hours or so, or four hours if, it's, if it was super cold. And then, um, um, let's see, uh, the other thing, ideally, is if you could have some control over where the marimba is physically in the room that it's being either recorded in or performed in. Performance rooms probably have more space. Recording rooms a little bit tighter in space. And uh, so that's really... You know, those are the things. Temperature and and finding a good spot in the room. You can't always find that. And uh, uh, but I think those are the two things that come to mind that are important. 
I had a follow-up question to that. One of the, the weirdest gigs I've ever gotten, this is when I was a student in Miami, I played a recital and there was this old lady that came up to me and she said, I'm having my 80th birthday party next month and I love the sound of marimba and I would love you to come play at my house. <laughs> Which was very bizarre in and of itself that I was playing for someone's birthday party that I didn't know. Um, but it was <laughs> it was outdoors in Miami. So it was super hot and yeah. muggy. And also, I, I'm pretty sure, I can't recall, I might have been in at least partial sunlight or maybe even direct sunlight. Luckily, it yeah. wasn't a very nice instrument that I took along with me. But the second that I played the first note, the sound went entirely dead. I noticed there was no resonance, which probably has to do with, I'm guessing there was no air in the resonators. So in a situation like that where you're playing outdoors, which I know people do sometimes for weddings, is there anything you would recommend to at least make the marimba sound somewhat better? <laughs> then just sticking it outside okay so if it was really hot and humid when it's warm resonators will go out of tune they'll go sharp so let's say it was in the you know the 80s or 90s those resonators went out of tune so they so essentially the resonator was no longer tuned to that bar so it's going to sound like a, almost like a marimba without resonators yeah I and mean, that's what it sounded like yeah. it was dead and then the high humidity that's going to choke up the bars that's that's like the biggest culprit for for poor performing bars is, is humidity. So, I mean, if, like strategically, if, if she told you, okay, can you play at noon? You, you'd have that marimba set up at five to noon and under shade. So the instrument has as little time as possible to acclimate to the heat and the humidity. That would be the trick, really. But, but as you played, it would probably get worse. Yeah, you yeah. Know. I mean, I was to the point where I was like almost trying to think of how to attach a bag of ice to the resonators or something. It was it was just <laughs> not good. <laughs> and can that heat and hum humidity permanently damage the instrument? Um, let's see the if, after repeated exposure. Um, the, the humidity seems to be the worst. I've I've seen bars crack um, if if it cycles a lot between humid and not humid, humid and not humid, and so um, and. I, I believe that's the biggest culprit or the biggest danger for marimba bars. Going from, from um, if it cycles slowly, um, that's probably not a big deal because as the wood's always going to be taking on moisture and giving off moisture. So you, so you just want to keep it as stable as you can. But if you can't do that, you want it to cycle relatively slowly. Yeah. yeah. But, when, but when you think about it, a marimba bar, I'll grab a piece of wood here. Um, so, oh, here's one. So, a, a, a marimba bar, as a piece of wood goes, is pretty small. I mean, when you think about it, and so it's it's relatively stable. So it's hard to hurt hurt them. They're they're pretty durable, but in high humidity situations, that's when they'll suffer the most. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just think about these DCI groups that are are using rosewood marimbas in the direct sunlight and. I, you know, we're much more, I think we're much more aware of it than we were 10 years ago. And, and this summer when I saw a couple groups rehearsing, I saw them, you know, putting covers on the marimba every single time they weren't playing them, which is great, but they're still in direct sunlight. Yeah. And I just think that's an irresponsible use of rosewood. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. I agree with you because uh, it'd be like taking a really nice violin outside in, in the blazing sun and uh, all the time. Yeah, it's it's really hard on the instruments. Yeah, I don't think it's good. Yeah. Yeah, not for me. Well, speaking of rosewood, I know a topic that 
um, we really wanted to talk to you about today that we have Facebook questions about and that Ben has prepared is all about Rosewood and the state of it today. So, Ben, can you fill us in on what's going on with Rosewood? Sure. So if you go online to look at information about this, as I did, it can be very confusing because a lot of it has to do with international trade regulations and there's technical jargon that goes with that. But I tried to sort of sum it up into a brief summary and I know Ron is an expert on this, so I'd love to hear him talk about it too. Uh, but anyway, rosewood is the name of several different species of darkly colored wood. And as we talked about before one time, it's actually named for the rosy sweet smell when you cut it, not the color of the wood. So not all rosewood is necessarily super reddish in color. It's used in music, musical instruments, including guitars, banjos, mandolins, harp bodies, violin fingerboards, marimbas, recorders, and clarinets, as well as in other uses such as furniture, cabinets, luxury flooring, and small woodwork pieces like chess sets, fountain pens, etc. The group that deals with the sort of trade of these exotic wood species is called Sites. C-I-T-E-S, which stands for Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. <laughs> and they're the ones that have the website that, like I said, has all sorts of like technical jargon on this stuff. So as far as the rosewood used in marimbas, we use Honduran rosewood, also called Honduras rosewood at times. Uh, and so Honduran rosewood grows in the broadleaf evergreen swamp forests of southern Belize and nearby regions of Guatemala and Mexico. You can tell these were not my words. These were directly from sites. <laughs> and from my understanding, it seems that actually Honduran rosewood is the sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, brand of rosewood or species of rosewood. Most of it actually doesn't seem to grow in Honduras, which seemed odd to me. And it seems there is some growing in Honduras, but it's largely protected. So anyway, I wanted to read a little quote from a site's thing that I read. It said, it is of limited availability in trade, although it is very much sought after, particularly as a tone wood for musical instruments and increasingly by the Asian market for furniture and cabinet making. The species is not available from plantations and therefore must be sourced from wild populations. In spite of its rarity, there is a, lar a high level of wastage as up to 80% is wasted as only logs of the straightest grain are used to make marimba bars. Large volumes are also lost when the low-value sapwood is removed. Increased, access increased accessibility to its habitat and declining stocks of other rosewoods has almost certainly led to the growing pressure to turn the species to meet demand. And I know on Gordon Stout's episode, he spoke briefly about, he said he had heard something from Ron and he wasn't quite sure what it was, but he had heard something about the brother of the president of Belize was involved as the main illegal exporter of rosewood to China. <laughs> And so I did some more research on China and rosewood, and apparently in Chinese culture, rosewood is is revered as some sort of beautiful material, which it is. And so uh, in a lot of sort of imperial ancient Chinese art, you see rosewood cabinets and rosewood wardrobes and this sort of thing. And I was reading about it. It's interesting. If you know anything about the economics of China, China is uh, experiencing an explosion of sort of the high middle class. And now people in China are, the masses are able to afford cars. And so there's all sorts of new roads in China. And this is why Beijing is exploding. But also, 
This means that a lot more people of this gigantic Chinese population are able to afford rosewood and they are buying it faster than it can be legally procured. So there are all sorts of terrible sort of illegal rosewood op operations and we've heard of blood diamonds. There's also blood wood which comes from conflict areas uh, in Thailand and uh, what was the other country on the, case, the video that Casey sent us? I can't remember but Eastern Asian Cambodia. Country. Yeah, Cambodia uh, is also another just huge, huge, terrible rosewood poaching situation. Um, and so in 2013, there was a Sites Conference of the Parties, the 16th Sites Conference of the Parties in Bangkok, Thailand. And they put all rosewood, including Honduran rosewood used in marimbas, they listed it as Sites Appendix 2 status, with the exception of Brazilian rosewood, which was already listed as Sites Appendix 1, which is the next level, which basically means that they're putting trade restrictions on it to try to prevent extinction. So it is endangered, but not extinct yet by any means, and they're trying to protect it. There are also regulations on how much of it you can ship. In uh, 2008, at the 23rd sites meeting in Geneva, Switzerland, they put a limit of 22, or sorry, 10 kilograms, which is 22 pounds limit per shipment, which was discussed as potentially problematic, especially for traveling musical ensembles where the entire musical instrument population would obviously be much over 22 pounds. Um, so it sounds like in 2016, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service clarified this to mean 10 kilograms or 22 pounds per instrument. And I know I heard Gordon talk one time about Doug DeMauro was having trouble trying to ship an instrument to Africa because his bars weighed over, I suppose, this 22 pound limit. And speaking of Gordon Stout, he has recently premiered a piece called One Last Breath, which is sort of a tribute to Rosewood and its... Uh, hopefully not but possibly stages of extinction so yeah that's there's all sorts of information like i said it's very difficult to sift through because it's not super music related all the time but ron i know you deal extensively with this could you tell us about your dealings with it and especially this weird situation that gordon mentioned about belize yeah the, the belize uh um the, the prime minister's brother for a period of time was the largest exporter of rosewood out of belize and that rosewood was all going to china and so you could make whatever conclusions you want from that. And uh, uh, by the way, Honduras rosewood, it's called Honduras rosewood because Belize used to be British Honduras. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, when, that makes sense. When Deegan, yeah. first in rosewood, when Deegan first started using rosewood, um, it was British Honduras. And, uh, and then in the 70s became Belize. But the, the name of the wood stuck as Honduran rosewood. And Honduran rosewood grows, like you said, in, in Belize and Guatemala, a little bit in southern Mexico, but it does not grow in Honduras. It's just those three countries. And it's been illegal to cut in Mexico since the 90s. And so, so all, all the rosewood that's legally cut right now comes from Belize and Guatemala. And, uh, and, and here, so, so every, everything you said, um, um, I think, is, is pretty much true. And, and and here, here's how here's how we've dealt with that. When when we learned that uh, uh, CITES uh, was was raising the level of of regulation on rosewood, um, basically we, we knew we had to go into action. And just for general lay, layman's terms, uh, when, up until the, the new the the raising of the flag happened, it went into effect on January second, two thousand seventeen. Before that, 
uh, all the rosewoods, other than, like I said, Brazilian rosewood, were, um, um, I know Honduras rosewood was on CITES 3. I don't know if all the other rosewoods were. But for Honduras, Honduras rosewood being on CITES 3, what that meant, it meant that there were, there's still no regulations, but it was a watch list. And it meant that the international community believed that there's going to be some problems there because of, of rapid deforestation, illegal poaching, illegal export and import. And, and Ron, and, Ron, sorry, if I could just interject one thing that because we're talking to you, I wanted to clarify is that there was actually a sites report uh, where they talked about the musical uses of Rosewood. And basically they said musicians have only the greatest interest of Rosewood uh, at heart. And also the amount of Rosewood that musicians are using is an almost insignificant portion in relation to the abuses of illegal rosewood for furniture and so on. So I just wanted to put it out there that Ron's use of rosewood is considered ethical and responsible <laughs> compared to <laughs> the sort of terrible uh, illegal nice. trade that's happening related to furniture. But sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to put that out there while you were talking. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, I th yeah, it's really true. The The furniture industry in China is 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 really big and compared to what all musical instrument makers use, um, we're, we're a small portion of that. And, and so, so like I said, when China, when China became more and more prosperous, all the rosewoods from Central America, South America, Africa, Madagascar, Asia, they all started going to, to China for the furniture industry, exactly like you said. And, and so, a lot of companies felt like CITES acted too quickly in in elevating the status from from the watch list CITES three to highly regulated CITES two, and I I personally feel that it was a great thing and that it was long overdue because mm -hmm. um, um, you could you could argue that oh let's study this for another five years and make sure we're making the best decision in that period of time more and more forests would be decimated. And we had to act. We knew, everybody knew what was going on. And uh, what got me involved in Rosewood was certainly marimbas. And around, around 2008, as, as I saw my U.S. suppliers, their ability to get Rosewood starting to dry up, I, I realized I had to go down to Central America and, and figure out how to get the wood directly down there. And it was... Uh, um, it, it took just countless trips uh, going down to Central America to set up a supply chain of, of rosewood and, and meeting with all sorts of people and, uh, and uh, never, never getting, uh, I would say never really getting ripped off, but always, but everything just a little, uh, not really knowing if it's going to work out because essentially I'm sending money down to Central America to people I don't really know. To, to mill wood for me, and so so the way I figured I could make that work and was I would I would go down there frequently. Every piece of wood we ever bought, we individually inspected. So if we got a container load of wood, every stick of wood, which would be about fifteen thousand pieces of wood, we individually inspect and look over. And eventually, what we did is we sent a mill down to uh, a family in Belize because they were they couldn't afford to really upgrade their, uh, from a table saw, literally. So they would get the logs, they'd get the logs, they'd be stamped from forestry, 
And, uh, and then they, with a chainsaw, they'd cut them in half and they'd put them on a table saw in a little shed covered in thatch and start milling out the wood. And it would take forever for us to, to get a load of rosewood. So I sent down uh, a mobile dimension band saw mill and something very low tech because the jungle down there eats everything up. And about 100 extra, 100 extra bandsaw blades sent down a whole sharpening setup because up until that time, they would have, have to travel five hours each direction just to get one, one blade resharpened. And so one, once we set up this family with, with a mill, they were able to, to mill the wood much more efficiently. And, uh, and it would take, still would take about a year to get, to get a load of rosewood, a long, long time. And uh, just sort of a, a funny story is in, in the early days of that relationship, whenever something really wasn't going right, and I just had to more or less use my intuition to figure it out because you couldn't really know from the conversation what was really happening, I would just get on a plane to go down there. And so what, what uh, the fellow told me who I gave the mill to, I ended up trading him for Rosewood, is that I said, well, why are things slowing down here so much? You know, why, why is it taking so long? Just explain this to me so I understand. And he said in, in the Mayan language, their Mayan language, they have no word for future. And so he said they're afraid if they, if they ever finish this order, I would never place another order. And so that was sounds like a sort of a cultural, you know, bridge I had to figure out how to cross. So what I told him, I said, I said, okay, well, what, I, what I'll do is I promise you every time that you complete an order, I'll send you another deposit for another order. And so that's sort of what got the whole thing going, along with sending the mill down. And so what's, what's happened, so my, my rosewood comes from both Belize and Guatemala. And the Belize rosewood, over time, there's been, um, as, as a controversy in Central America, has risen over rosewood. There's been more and more regulations put on the cutting of the wood. So our, our most recent order of, of rosewood, that wood came from uh, a large tract of land that that foresters cut it up into 30 imaginary individual tracts. And then what they did is uh, we got to bid on it. So my supplier down there and myself, we bought all the roads would off that first tract of land. And the way it worked was they were allowed, they could cut any trees that were 10 inches and bigger. And so it's, it's called selectively cut. And, and so all the trees ten, below 10 inches, they left. And then the next year they'd go on to the second tract of land. So, so it'd be a 30 year cycle. And in that 30 years, they believe that the, that the forest would, would regenerate in that period of time. And so, so that's how that's how um, that's how it worked for us in Belize and in and in Guatemala. Um, um, for that rosewood, they're required. The government requires them to plant 14 rosewood trees for every rosewood tree that's cut. And so, my supplier down there, he has um, he has a whole nursery, somewhat of a you know, with thousands and thousands of rosewood trees. And the rosa tree, it's in the legume family, which is a nitrogen-fixing tree. And so what they'll do, at the, at the right time of year, they'll go around and they'll collect the seed pods that fall on the ground and they'll crack them open. It's like a little paper, like a, like a stiff, almost leather-like paper that surrounds the seed, 
So they'll open that up to give the seed a better chance of sprouting, and they'll plant them. You know, in the and then they'll go ahead, and uh, when they're big enough, they'll just plant them back in the forest. That, that's how those, that's how that situation works there. Yeah. In, but in reality, both both Belize and Guatemala, um, it's very highly regulated right now. Is is people are are are, are generally fairly poor there. And there's a lot of motivation for people to poach the logs. Because if someone comes in and says, hey, I'm going to give you cash right now for these trees, it's, it's really tempting. And so what CITES has done, CITES has required that literally from forest to factory, you have to have chain of custody, everything. Like you have to have proof of forest, forestry approval in either Belize or Guatemala. You have to document the transportation. You can't just have a truckload of roads which show up at the border. Everything has to be... Uh, methodically documented, and uh, um, and and that's how that's sort of I think a great thing about CITES is that uh, everything is is now highly regulated and it's much much more difficult to poach wood like like it's never been before. Also, just a little aside is that of all the um, societies regulates all sorts of endangered species around the whole world and rosewood. Um, it's it's the highest value uh, illegally traded endangered species there is on the planet. Wow! Oh yeah. my goodness! Wow! Yeah. No. yeah. I what I what I read that I, I think on the site site. And, yeah. Uh, and it's it's interesting also with all the especially the China stuff. It seems sort of like gold and diamonds, where because it is a precious material that makes it more desirable, which then even drives up the demand more. <laughs> it's sort of like a snowball effect problem. <laughs> It's self-feeding. Yeah. It is self Yeah, it brings in speculators, <clears throat> yeah, people who want to hoard it. Yeah, it's a well, also, like, this process, Casey sent us this video um, from, that National Geographic had did about, um, you know, rosewood poaching in Cambodia and Thailand, as Ben mentioned. And it's crazy that they can't catch these guys because they're chopping down trees. They're not just digging for gold. You know, yeah. I mean, and the poachers it's were like also, the they're poachers cutting were down also, trees. That makes noise, and it's they're large. The poachers were <laughs> so also taunting the rangers that were going after them. They were stamping their initials on things just to screw around yeah. with the ranger. It was insane. We needed to link that video somehow on here. Yeah, it's really cool. But I mean, also, you know, rainforests are forests are giant places. <laughs> so, and yeah, I, I you know I could see it, but seems like it'd be easier to catch than than people who are i guess killing anim- uh, elephants for tusks and ivory and mm-hmm. things yeah. like that i mean it's it's hard it's hard because um, a lot of these areas are, are remote and there's not many people around and yeah. so so these areas of belize and guatemala there's you know it's it's um, there's, there's there's settlements there there's people there but still it's remote and it's it's really hard to police and manage it all, and uh, so so that's again that that's why CITES came down and said we you have to prove everything from forest to factory that the entire way that it's all legal, and and that's that's their that's their effort to really attempt to to make everything on the up and up. We have uh, family members that have a. A beautiful rosewood table and set of chairs that sits outside on their porch. Uh-huh. And when they told us it was rosewood, and it was my first time there, I had this like, what? <laughs> um, 
But it's correct to say that the the parts of the tree that we want for marimba bars are the very center. Is that right? No, actually not. Um, oh. Yeah. So if when uh, um, I, I don't know why this occurs, but every every rose tree, if you look if you look um, at the end of the log where it's cut, um, without exception, there's always there's always rot in there. And particularly more at the base of the tree, but even as you go up the tree, um, there's a little bit of rot, and there's always cracks radiating out from the center of the tree. So, um, what's really kept rosewood around as long as it's been around is that the tree, the Honduras rosewood, is that the tree itself has um, has a lot of defect in the tree. It's not like it's not like a tree that you could take and put on a mill and just saw boards off the tree. Um, with rosewood, there's, in the center in particular, there's always cracks and rot, so you always have to cut around it and spend a lot of time. So, so the, um, uh, the wood that's used, that's usable, that doesn't have the cracks, will be away from the center, and also it won't be the very uh, outside of the tree, uh, because the outside of the tree has a little bit of uh, like ivory-colored bark. You may have seen some marimba bars that have a little bit of ivory color to them, and that's that's the sapwood, and so so you so ultimately you have the wood that's just in from the sapwood, and as far towards the center as you can get without having any cracks. That's really that's really what you what's usable on that tree. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So changing gears a bit, we had a Facebook question from Brian Calhoun, uh, and I wanted to ask Brian's question, but also sort of a more general question. Brian said, would you consider making a four-octave marimba, the lower four octaves, I rarely play up there. But also, I just wanted to ask about some of the more interesting custom instruments you've been asked to make, and if there's been anything you felt you couldn't make. For example, I know that Ejen Fang has a marimba one with piano-colored keys, like the, the naturals are light-colored and the accidentals are dark-colored. And I've seen marimba ones that split halfway so they can fit through doors and things like that. So could you tell us about some of the more bizarre <laughs> requests you've had? We, we get requests um, maybe once a year or so for instruments like Ejen Fang's marimba where where she wanted to look like a piano. And, and the rosewood, the rosewood comes in all different colors. And we don't stain our rosewood. And I, I always think, I've always believed the rosewood is so beautiful that I could never bring myself to stain it. I thought the color was just beautiful as it is. And and the rosewood from Guatemala generally tends to be dark. The rosewood from Belize can go from very light to dark. So for Ejen Fang's marimba, we used, for the for the naturals, we used, it would have been rosewood from, definitely from Belize for the lighter part, for the white keys. And then for the black keys, it would have been either Guatemalan rosewood or dark Belize rosewood. So, so I mean, we we can certainly do that. Um, um, we, when we when we build marimbas, people can always ask us for for things like that because we have a lot of rosewood, and it's easy for us to do it. It makes it more interesting for for the crew who's building the marimbas, because then they get to do something that's fun and a little bit different. Um, but uh, so the marimbas that split in half, those are engineering nightmares. We prefer not to make those. <laughs> um, made one, um, you know, 
for, for schools that have old elevators that are small elevators and they're trying to move around a marimba between floors so that without always taking it apart. So that's what precipitated that. Um, gosh, let me think. Um, um, let's see. Uh, acoustically on the instruments, uh, all, all the things that we're doing now came out of people's requests. So we were talking about the resonator, the, the original classic resonators versus the Bossa Bravo resonators. Um, that actually came out of, along with my phone here in my office, people would tell me, gosh, you know, can, can you, I think I'd like a murmur that sounds a little bit darker. So um, that kind of request for the keyboards um, you probably already know we have different levels of keyboards, and uh, and that's traditional, enhanced, and premium. And we don't put any more time into tuning those particular keyboards. Um, it's um, it's that we're we're looking to optimize the potential of each piece of wood, and and so uh, so I think in a way those are probably at least to my way of thinking, the most meaningful things we can do for people is, is, is build these different acoustics of instruments. And there's one sort of, one sort of um, esoteric topic that's a little bit um, hard to articulate. Let me know if you have questions about this, is that um, um, the, the rosewood from Belize and Guatemala is, is the, same, the same rosewood, the same trees, that all the marimba companies are using. And um, we, we just happen to go directly to the source. Um, I think we're the only company that are doing that in, in both Guatemala and in Belize. And, and I wanted to do that <clears> so <throat> I wouldn't be competing with the other marimba companies for the same wood, essentially. Right. And, and wanted to have first pick. Um, when you're... Um, and so, so other companies definitely have access to, to high quality rosewood too, and um, and the difference in the qualitative differences in the sounds of the instruments um, that you hear around the world are a function of certainly the rosewood that's used, but also the tuning. And so it's a little bit like you could, you know, you could plan to make a really great dinner, like the best dinner you can imagine. And get the best ingredients, but if you burn it, um, you still may have had the best ingredients, but it's not going to taste very good. So, so, um, so with with marimba bars and tuning, um, uh, we always like I've never I've never put a time frame on anybody to tune a single marimba bar who, who works for me. It's it's always um, it's always we're trying to optimize that piece of wood. So you can take a really great piece of wood, but if you don't tune it correctly or tune it well, it'll just be an average sounding marimba bar. And, and so if you, um, conversely, if you really know how to tune a bar very well and you take the time to do it, um, it could come out really good. And the, and the job of a, of a tuner, in my mind, the real job of a marimba tuner is they're a problem solver. That's, that's what they're doing. They're problem solvers. Sure, they, they happen to be tuning, but, but as you tune, you're identifying all these different things that are all, oftentimes conflicting with each other, and you have to resolve those. And when you do that well, that's when it sounds most musical. So back to what people ask us to do. I mean, essentially, of, of the weird things, um, you know, people ask us to make crazy colored resonators sometimes. 
basing some of those instruments. There's there's it's, one instrument that I've always wanted, and that is Dan Levitan's marimba quartet requires an extra low A and B flat underneath the conventional five octave range. So I've always wanted a two note marimba that I could just wheel up. <laughs> well, that would be, it might tip over. You'd have to put some <laughs> yeah, It'd be interesting. <laughs> I would love to hear anything about the vibraphone that you've released recently, if you feel okay talking about that. Totally, yeah, yeah. So we, uh, um, we spent about a little over two years, um, thought about it for a long time, but once we committed, we spent over two years designing uh, a vibraphone. And, uh, and the, it ended up being um, a much more challenging project than I thought and anybody else here thought it was going to be. And what we did is we, we knew we wanted it like the marimbas, design it from the ground up, everything. And so um, over the years, I collected a number of vibraphones. Uh, I had a really nice old uh, Musser from the 70s with a killer sound that legend has it is that uh, Gary Burton had selected those bars out for that particular instrument and uh, and then I have a, had a newer Musser, Yamaha and some other instruments and and I set them all up in my shop and when, when, when people would come through I'd ask them to play and everybody universally gravitated towards that old Musser and they all love that the sound on, on that old instrument really warm and uh, um, resonant, a re very beautiful sound. And then in the meantime, we, we set about trying to understanding how we could um, build a better instrument. And so we decided, we included uh, like the easy height adjustment system on the vibraphone, so it's easy to height adjust. Um, we, on all the shapes on the vibraphone, all the metal shapes on it, those are our own extrusions. Those are so. Those are our own, our own proprietary shapes that we thought would work best for the instrument. Um, we we make everything here. Now it's not like subbed out overseas. It's done 100 percent here. One thing we did is we um, um, we analyzed all the aluminum from all the different marimba companies to really understand what was going on, and and we actually. Uh, um, decided on an alloy mix that, that was a little bit different than everybody else's that we liked, that we felt was warmer and more resonant. So that's a we chose. And, and I think sometimes in, in, like in this industry, um, there's, there's not a lot of, it's not often that you find companies that are doing primary research. It's more of a derivative approach where they'll say, okay, you know, this company used this, we're just going to use this because it's worked for them. And so we, we were, we like going back to the very beginning and trying to ask the questions, well, why, why was this exact alloy used? And um, are there other ones that maybe we like better? Turns out there are. And, and then we had to set up a whole area of the shop uh, for metalworking. Megan, when you came through here, that was all set up, I believe. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I, something that I really took away or something I wasn't expecting when I came to visit Marimba One was that it felt less of a factory and it felt more like an invention lab. Uh huh. I see. You know, I mean, like things are being obviously everything's being made there, and there's a specific order and everything's happening in this amazing way. But also all the experiments that are happening and <clears throat> so yes, that was set up when I was there. That was really cool. Yeah, yeah, and that was. 
that was just that was a long, pro super long process, just getting all the metalworking tools organized to do what we want them to do. Um, and metal's different than wood. <laughs> yes, and then and there were some things that we wanted to to solve, and and it was and it, it was like the marimbas in that I would have conversations with people, different people here would also have conversations with vibe players, and we try to understand what were some of the problems that people had and that they want to see resolved. And so one of them was the damping pad, sort of the classic damping pad, not um, not equally damping the bars. And and so uh, so we invented a little a little hard to describe, but um, uh, there's there's um, there's a traditional tensioner on the pad. And so one thing about the damping pad is like the the, the theory is that the bottoms of all the five bars, naturals and accidentals, have to be in exactly the same plane, like dead on the same plane. And what that means is that the holes in the bars have to be uh, drilled very perfectly down up from the bottom of the bar, so that the bottoms are in the same plane. And then, um, and then also the pad that uh, the felt pad that that rests on the, the piece of aluminum, we use aluminum for that, that too has to be like totally dead flat. So that, you know, if it's warped or something or twisted, um, of course it's not gonna touch the bars at the same moment. And so we dealt with all that, but also what we did on the base end of the instrument, we we devised a little, a little box that you could uh, essentially uh, lower just the base end of the damping pad or raise it up a little bit. So, um, the, the base bars have more energy to them because they're bigger. They're going to want they'll, they'll ring longer. You know, when you strike them with the same strike force as, for example, the top bars. So, uh, so you can play with that. So you can say, okay, I want the base end to ring out a little bit longer because I, maybe maybe you're comping in a jazz piece chords in the base end, or else or else you want it to ring the exact same as the rest of the instrument. So you just a little knob. You could you could control that. The, the ring time of the bars. And then the other thing we spend a lot of time on is, uh, is, is the drive system for the fans. Mm -hmm. And what we ended up developing is um, a, uh, a system where it's, um, it's a little bit hard to describe, but um, uh, we have a motor and, you know, variable speed motor. And by the way, when you stop the motor, um, the fans always stop at the 12 o'clock position, both of them. Um, <laughs> <but> what? <laughs> well done. <laughs> what? Um, Finally. <laughs> so there's these, these, these two discs that spin around, um, and, and the discs, they have embedded in them rare earth magnets. And about a quarter inch away from them is another disc with a rare earth magnet embedded in those as well. And that, and that secondary disc is attached to the shaft that has all the fans that spin around inside the resonators. Mm -hmm. So basically, there, there's no mechanical contact between these rotating discs. And so what it allows us to do, basically, is it keeps the system really quiet, which is super important. But also, when you go to uh, set the vibe up or take it down, you don't have to deal with the belt or anything. You just put the resonators in. Or take them out. The, the belt, you never unhook the belt or have to hook the belt up. And so it just makes it really easy. And uh, um, yeah, just just trying to figure out how to simplify the instrument is yeah. what, what our big goal has been.
I had I had a question about vibraphones, and when you think about xylophones, everyone always says, "Oh, the old Deegan xylophone sounds so good," and that makes sense to me because it's the old wood, etc., etc., etc. For vibraphones, it's always, "Oh, those Musser vibraphones from the '70s sound so good," and the Marimba One vibe sounds a lot like the the old Musser vibes to me. But what is like? Why do the '70s Musser vibes sound better than? new muscle like that doesn't make any sense to me because it's metal it shouldn't be changing unless they change their alloy to something worse um so so we pose that question to we have some friends who are material scientists and that exact question and we actually sent them some bars for them to analyze as well from from the early 70s vibe that i mentioned and actually the newer the newer muscle um, vibe which which are the same alloy those two proved out to be the same alloy and and so Essentially, what the material scientists told us is that is that the crystalline structures changes inside that metal over time, and um, it, it essentially it changes. So, what we hear is we hear a bit of a change in the in like the harmonic structure. We, the 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 fundamental becomes a little bit stronger, and the overtones become a little bit weaker. The only the only downside. Of it is that it doesn't ring quite as long, the old muscle. But um, which didn't seem like a big deal because, like I said, when everybody came through the shop, every 100% everybody loved that old muscle. And mm -hmm. so, um, but that's apparently something actually changes within the metal itself. And that makes sense because that's what happens with symbols. That's why symbols change, right? Same concept. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the same same with rosa bars too. So when we get a marimba back to retune, we can tell um, we can generally tell how that instrument was played because we keep records on the instruments. We know what we sent out to people, and and so um, we we've we've received instruments back that sound literally confused, and and go God, this is like not a very good keyboard. And I'll call the teacher up and say, hey, what's going on? And this, this this exact situation happened, and it was at a school, and they said, well, basically anybody can have at that marimba anytime, anywhere, and there's no controls over it. And mm. and at the same time, we we, we got uh, Katarina Mishka's keyboard back here to retune, and that thing sounded phenomenal. It sounded better than when we sent it out to her. And for, and so like a good musician is going to develop a keyboard, they're, they're going to play it, and they're going to, they're basically going to play it to sound in its most musical way possible, and and it sounds like magic, but it, it really sort of is. That basically develops the instrument. It's like a violin. People could like a really great violin. Someone could say, "Hey, I could tell someone played my violin." You know, you can just feel it, and and it's the same with marimbas and the same with vibes and cymbals. It it really makes a difference. Yeah. So. Ron, I wanted to ask you about something, and I feel like I feel like an old man when I say this because I can say, I remember when Marimba One only made instruments, <laughs> and Me I too. I distinctly remember in undergrad when they when you guys started making mallets, and I, it like it's like no, they can't make mallets; they only make marimbas. <laughs> so could you tell us about the pro like what first of all, what was your inspiration be behind starting to make a completely different project in mallets? Because uh, I guess that other that was your first venture out from the instruments themselves and then what were some of the what was the development process like for those yeah um, um it was super interesting and really fun i gotta say um uh what what 
let's see, what drove that process, it's been a while now, it's been probably 10 years or so. What drove that process was some musicians with whom I work asked me to do that. And, uh, and you know, I, I hemmed and hawed over it and, and finally said, okay, we'll start, we'll start to figure this out. And, uh, and so what we, we have a, a habit of sort of doing everything from the ground up. So what we did is we, we make all our own heads. I, um, I think we're the only company that makes all their own heads. Like we designed them all up and we have a, um, we have a system where um, we have three different head sizes and, and they're injection molded, which is a way of injection molding. You can, we use these materials that are a cross between uh, rubbers and plastic. They're called thermal elastomers. Are, are you and talking you, about, when you're talking about heads, are you talking about the cores of the mallets? Cores, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so you can make them in all, um, we have three different sizes. We have all different hardnesses we can make them. And then we also encapsulate um, weights, if we choose, in there to make them like, like, for example, the Caterina Musica mallets are like really heavy, whereas the round sound are very light. So we can make them different, different weights as well. So there's a whole, like we created a whole sort of large palette of possibilities for us. And then we, um, we actually developed and patented this really cool machine um, that what it does is um, um, uh, you, you put, we, we glue the head on the shaft, whether it be rattan or birch, and we put it in a chuck, like, like, a, like a drill press chuck that's vertically oriented, and slowly revolves around. And then we have these um, like these hollow tubes where the yarn spools out. And what we patented is that you, we have two, two independent yarns being wrapped at once. So we could either do like wool and wool, uh, you know, synthetic and wool or synthetic and synthetic. But also we can control the angle with which it wraps as well. And, and what, by controlling the angle, that allows you to mask the yarn in different areas of the head. So, for example, uh, let's see, the wave wrap mallets, there's more yarn around the equator of it. And, uh, um, and so that gives you a different sound. Also, we put digital tension, tensioners on it, so it's constantly measuring tension. Like every, it's not just like, you just don't dial the tension on it. It's, it's like in real time, always correctly tensioning it. So we, we got really into the mechanical side of it, um, as you can tell. And, uh, <laughs> and, then, and then once we started making mallets, uh, we sent them out to a lot of different musicians and, and tried to really learn from them of what was, you know, what people really wanted. Mm -hmm. And so the first ones that came out were, were the double helix mallets, which are still our most popular series. And uh, um, a big shout out to Yuko Yoshikawa, who helped us out quite a bit on those. And, uh, uh, and it, it was just, just a really, really interesting learning process. What it did for me, and I think everybody here, it allowed us to, to learn a lot about our marimbas through the mallets. I mean, that's really what came out for us. And uh, I, I don't know, it's just been a really sort of fun, interesting process of of, of making mallets and and again they're they're not easy they're a challenge um uh yeah is that actually your question ben yeah yeah and i mean to me like i won't name manufacturers but sometimes like you get a mallet and you look at it and it, like okay here's a marimba mallet you can kind of toss it aside 
those double helix mallets i remember when i first saw them, i was like i have to hold this and look at it they just look so cool and so impressive to look at and I, now i can understand why with all the engineering that went into them yeah and and i gotta i gotta give credit to uh um a fellow named steve cole megan you may have met steve he's the handlebar mustache character. oh i did he's here Who yeah on basic shows so steve is the lead engineer here yeah and so steve invented that machine and also um he's the lead engineer like all the cool hardware on the izzy on the 3100 that's all I mean, Steve and I will work together on concepts, but Steve is like, he's, he's the hardcore engineer really designing up all those, all those unique parts and all those systems, the height adjustment systems, all that. So, so yeah, some great people here, really great people here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guys, this has been the quickest 75 minutes of discussion ever. <laughs> Thanks, Ron, for all your energy and developing things that have helped Percussion World so much. Thanks to everybody for your Facebook questions, including those we didn't get to from Brian Calhoun, Dan Chisholm, Maria Inesh-Lewis, and Alan Lang. And, of course, thank you, Mr. Ron Samuels, for being able to spend some time with us and share your expertise. Thank you all very much for your time. Mm -hmm. Thanks, morning. Ron.